0: Welcome once again to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today's interview. I'm pleased to welcome Christina Snyder to the podcast. Dr. Snyder is the McCabe Greer Professor of History at Penn State University and is the author of Great Crossings, Indians, Settlers, and Slaves in the Age of Jackson, which came out in 2017 with Oxford University Press and this year won the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of... Uh, excuse me, from the Society of American Historians. Christina, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So why don't we begin by hearing about yourself? What got you interested in history and what's your background as a historian?
1: Uh, sure. I am uh, originally from Macon, Georgia, and I grew up in a in a town called, well, it was originally called Okmulgee, and it was part of the old Creek Nation. Um, and one of the things that really captivated me when I was younger uh, was a mound site uh, that we had in, in town there, which is one of the largest mound sites in North America. And so... You know, I was really interested in um, archaeology and material culture, and that's kind of what I studied in college. That's how I got into Native American history. Um, But I was also kind of interested in. thinking about how those native-centered stories are part of the broader scope of American history, you know, how stories like that of Okmulgee might connect uh, to other things that I knew about the region, um, for example, about colonialism and slavery. Um, so just kind of broadly as a scholar, I'm, I'm still inspired um by that quest to um, tell kind of a fuller scope of American history, uh, including uh, the history of Native peoples.
0: And how did you become interested in the topic of the Choctaw Academy, of Great Crossings, and of Jacksonian America?
1: Yeah, I, um, well, in my first book, I wrote about slavery in Indian country, and uh, when I was doing that research, I came across a letter, um, that was written by Peter Pitchlin, who is one of the figures in this book. Uh, and it took place at Choctaw Academy. So he was a student at this boarding school and he was describing, uh, in that letter, his relationships with enslaved people, his kind of fraught relationships, um, some arguments that he'd gotten into. And, um, You know, I thought it was a really intriguing letter, and I couldn't do much with it in that first book. Um, But later on, when I kind of got more into the topic, I discovered that uh, this place that Pitchlin was writing from, uh, Choctaw Academy, was the first federally controlled Indian school, so in the sense that it was controlled by the federal government and not a missionary society, and that a lot of famous Native Americans had gone to school there. And so um, that's really how I got on on the track of of looking at it, um, thinking about it from both uh, Native American history angle and history of slavery angle.
0: I feel like that's how a lot of really good uh, historical works start is you come across something in the archive, and you just can't let it go. And you just you want to get back around to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was just one of those really intriguing documents. And that's been one of the well, that was one of the really great things about researching this book is that especially for a 19th century story, an early 19th century story, there are really a lot of documents authored by Native Americans, um, because so many people went to the school and became literate, Um, and, you know, to a lesser extent, African American documents as well. But it does have a really rich um, documentary record. So that's been a real joy in this project.
0: Well, let's jump into the book then. And it is, in many ways, it's a pretty dramatic story, and there's a lot of characters within it. So let's begin maybe by just talking about a few of the recurring people in the book and their backgrounds. And first, and you mentioned him already, but can you tell us who was Peter Pitchlin, um, and what world did he come from, and why he's important to the story?
1: Sure. So um, Peter Pitchlin uh, was a Choctaw leader and in the 19th century. I'd say probably one of the most important Choctaw political figures of the 19th century. And um, he was um, born, his Choctaw name is Snapping Turtle, so he, he was born in what's now Mississippi. And he grew up in an elite family. So his mother came from a long line of chiefs, um, and of course uh, Choctaws practiced matrilineal kinship, so they got their... Um, family identities from their mother's side. And that gave that lineage of chiefs gave him already a kind of prominent uh, place in his nation. Uh, and his father was white. His father's name was John Pitchlin, and he had been raised among Choctaws um, uh, and as an adult had gained a certain amount of wealth by becoming a translator and planter and um, so, you know, he, he was very privileged as a youth, um, and uh, he was very ambitious too. He was the nephew of uh, a Choctaw chief named Meshulatabi, who was um, one of the most prominent chiefs in the nation. Um, and as uh, his maternal nephew, Pitchlin was kind of Meshulatabi's heir apparent. And uh, initially, he Pitchlin had um, an education. He went to some white schools um, in Mississippi and Tennessee. And um, in terms of Western schooling, there were not a lot of options available for Native children at that time. So um, Pitchlin went to these schools, wasn't terribly satisfied, and he was interested in gaining access to Um, more elite Western schooling so that he could take on a kind of new role in his nation. Um, Because increasingly what his nation needed, like a lot of Native American nations at that time, um, was not the kind of masculine education of the 18th century, which had been in uh, Warcraft, um, but rather in diplomacy and treaty making in the law. Um, you know. So it, it, the kind of leadership that he wanted for, for his people was um, something that would require really advanced education. So that's what led he um, and ultimately his nation to seek out this higher schooling. Um, and Pitchlin himself was a student at Choctaw Academy. Um, And he went on to also study law, um, had a prominent career as a politician, and eventually became chief of the Choctaw Nation. Uh, He's interesting in this story in that, you know, he's present at at almost the very beginning of of the school, and then he also plays a leading role in closing the school down uh, in the mid-19th century.
0: And who was Richard Mentor Johnson? Uh, What was his background and what was his life like at Great Crossings, Kentucky?
1: So Richard Mentor Johnson um, was uh, a really prominent uh, Democratic politician. Uh, He's from Kentucky. Uh, He was Kentucky's first congressman that had actually been born in the territory um, instead of in, you know, Virginia or another American state. And he too came from a prominent family. Um, His father was one of the largest landholders in Kentucky. Uh, He grew up on a plantation. um, And uh, he became really famous during the War of 1812 um, because he supposedly uh, killed Tecumseh, the great Indian leader, at the Battle of the Thames. And that was. Disputed at the time, it's, you know, historians still argue about it, Um, but the the kind of point of that is that most Americans at the time believed that Johnson had killed Tecumseh, and in a war that in many ways was not terribly memorable, Johnson was one of the heroes, and so he really kind of rode that prominence um, to political fame. He eventually became vice president under Martin Van Buren. And he was a really controversial um, figure um, in the Democratic Party and in American politics kind of more broadly.
0: Right, which brings us to the third person I wanted to ask about. Um, And while Pitchlin and Johnson both came from rather elite circles in their communities and their societies, uh, Julia Chin did not. Can you tell us who she was and why she matters to the story?
1: Yes. So um, Julia Chin... Grew up in the Johnson household. She was an enslaved woman. Uh, her mother had also been a slave in the Johnson household. Um, she and her siblings all took the surname Chen, um, which is kind of an unusual surname, but there are some Kentucky families um, with that name. And uh, this kind of indicates her father was probably white. Um, And that possibly, you know, the family wanted to retain that association with him. Um, So as an enslaved woman, um, she served within the Johnson households. Uh, Oral history indicates that she was um, a maid to Johnson's mother, Jemima, and that Jemima taught her how to read and write. And we do know that she was literate um, because later in life, she wrote letters to Johnson. Um, So, you know, that evidence suggests that she probably did learn how to read and write as a child. Um, But uh, when when she is about 20 years old and Johnson is about 30 years old, um, we know by this time that they had a sexual relationship. And, you know, unfortunately, like so many relationships um, between... Um, enslaved people and masters in the 19th century, you know, there's, um, it's probably coercive in some way. You know, we don't really um, have a way of knowing how it started or, you know, what Julia thought about it. Um, But uh, they did have two children together, uh, and they did have a long-term relationship. So um, Johnson himself never married a white woman, Uh, And for all intents and purposes, people at Great Crossings um, uh, often called uh, Julia Chen his, quote, wife. Um, They certainly did raise their children together. And um, Richard Johnson did emancipate the two children that they had together, um, Julia and Imogene. Um, And Chen's an interesting figure because... um, you know, she's enslaved. Um, her her life and her opportunities are circumscribed in all kinds of ways in Anniebellum, Kentucky. Um, at the same time, she is the mistress of um this very powerful man. And Johnson himself, because he's a politician, he is gone uh, to Washington, DC for six months out of the year, you know really every year of their adult lives together. And during that time, he puts um, Chen in charge of the plantation and also in charge of running the day-to-day affairs at the school, uh, Choctaw Academy. So she and other enslaved people are very much involved in the life of the school and the community.
0: So these are just three of the many, many characters that um, crop up again and again in this book. But let's zoom out a little bit and tell us, if you will, about the founding of Choctaw Academy. Why was it, as you describe in the book, as an, um, excuse me, an ambitious experiment in education? And then why did both Johnson, as well as many Native American leaders, argue for the need for such a school?
1: Yeah, so um, it, it was really a, a different kind of educational experiment. Um, And at the time, the um, federal government really thought of the school as part of its broader uh, civilization policy. And this is uh, a broader Indian policy that sought to remake Native people in the image of white Americans. And education was part of that, although most of what the federal government did was to support mission societies. Um, And the interesting thing about... um, native nations at this time and their attitudes toward education was that, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, many native nations, especially those in the East who had a lot of contact with the United States, they did want to have, um, uh, Western schooling. You know, they did want English literacy. They wanted to be able to read treaties and negotiate trade deals and, and so forth, you know, um, But they didn't necessarily want conversion, you know, Christian conversion was actually much more controversial in Indian communities in the early 19th century. And so essentially Choctaw Academy um, is seen as kind of a secular alternative that still, you know, from the perspective of the U.S. fulfills that larger civilization policy. And from the perspective of Native Americans, give them access to Western schooling uh, without Christian conversion. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there as kind of it. that's the that's the beginning of of the school, which has you know kind of an auspicious start. And part of the interesting thing about it is that um, it, it really receives very little money from the federal government. Almost all the money comes from Native American nations.
0: What were life and education like it at the Choctaw Academy for students and for teachers as well and for as for enslaved people particularly in the early years? The book is full of a lot of really fantastic stories ranging from, you know, frankly pretty funny ones to ones that are also down like tragic, downright tragic and horrifying. So can you give us kind of a broad overview of what life was like there?
1: Sure, it's um you know because of the rich documentary nature of this um this place you can really tell these incredibly human stories so like you said you know sometimes they're they're funny sometimes they're tragic um often they involve a lot of pain you know um so that's been one of the great things about bringing this project to life but um just to give you maybe a little bit of a taste of what life was like there um, it, one of the interesting things is that this is, was an incredibly diverse place in early America. So it was, Choctaw Academy was the largest and most culturally diverse Indian school uh, in the antebellum period. So, you know, over the course of its history from the 1820s to the 1840s, there were uh, almost 700 Indian boys and men representing 17 different tribal nations. And these nations are really, really diverse, um, so they can't, they don't necessarily all speak the same language. You've got um, people who speak Muskogean languages from the Deep South, like the Choctaws and Chickasaws. Um, you also have fur trading peoples from the Great Lakes region, like the Potawatomis, the Miamis. And a lot of them, you know, already spoke some English, but if they spoke a European language, it was more likely to be French. Um, and we know that at least one member of the student body had actually traveled to France before and had lived there for several several years. Um, you even have some students who, who come from uh, Plains peoples, uh, like the Osages, for example, who are bison hunters. And so even the students at the school would have found one another to be incredibly culturally diverse and foreign. You know, it was really the first time that they were meeting um, native boys and men from such different kinds of places. And, um, you know, there are some conflicts with students, but overall, they seem to have valued that experience as, you um, you know, a kind of brotherhood bonding experience. We know, for example, that they taught one another dances and played uh, tribal sports together, like stickball, for example. Um, And they also thought of this experience as a kind of study abroad, um, immersive experience. So, you know, I mentioned before that this was a secular school, that, you know, religion wasn't part of the curriculum, but students could and did go to church on Sundays if they chose to. Um, And, you know, some of these students were, uh, for example, Great Lakes people were often um, already Catholic. So they went to a Catholic church that was nearby. Um, Some of the Southeastern peoples uh, were Baptist, and the Baptist church was the closest church. And especially in doing things like Going to church or you know meeting other members of the community that way they were invited into white households we know that they had dinner at people's houses um, and local whites in Kentucky thought that this was a really fascinating place as well. Um, So one of the things that Choctaw Academy did, which was very common, you know, all American academies did this at the time, um, was to have annual exhibitions. And basically, this is kind of a public demonstration of what the students have been learning all year. Um, And they would do different exercises like spelling or elocution or have a debate or something like that. Um, And at Choctaw Academy, these were open to the public. And in fact, Johnson kind of used this as a campaigning event, and he would have free food and things like that. Um, And so thousands of people would come to this, you know, small community from all over the state. And even, you know, if politicians were passing through the area, they would come and visit Um, So at the time, you know, this was really uh, a famous kind of place and, you know, a place that was um, looked at with interest both from Washington, D.C. and from Indian country.
0: And one of the events that stuck out for me in the book was the so-called coffee riot. And I'm wondering if you could briefly describe what that particular incident was and what it tells us about the complicated racial hierarchy that existed at the Choctaw Academy.
1: Sure. So um, one of the incidents where enslaved people and students came into close contact uh, was in the dining hall, um, because um, slaves served as cooks uh, and also the wait staff at the dining hall. And um, it, it, I got, you know, quite a few documents that mentioned different kinds of, um, you know, either friendships that sparked there or, you know, more often conflicts in the dining hall. And um, basically what happened with this coffee riot incidents was the Native students, they complained a lot about the food uh, that was offered at Choctaw Academy, partly because, it wasn't what they were used to, but partly because students felt like it was cheap food, you know, that they were not getting nice food. And, and you know, people then and now, we read a lot of meaning into food, right? Like what is, um, what reflects our kind of status in society, right? And, and one of the things that the students complained about a lot was coffee, that, Um, they were actually, many of the tribes were, were used to having coffee at home. It was a very common commodity in Indian country. And when they came to school, uh, they complained that Johnson mixed the coffee with rye. And then essentially it was weak, cheap coffee. And the incident at this coffee riot was students were having breakfast one morning. They started to complain to the wait staff about this coffee. And, uh, we don't know how exactly, but these verbal, attacks on the weight staff um, became physical and the students started throwing coffee at the weight staff and eventually throwing stones at them too. Um, and um, this incident I think gets at the really complex um, uh, nature of race and status uh, in that community uh, because on the one hand you have these, Students, many of whom come from elite backgrounds, Um, and this incident happened in the 1820s when removal is certainly being discussed, Um, and um, students are in a foreign land, they're kind of fighting for what they see as their right to be respected, um, to be treated as equals with white Americans. Um, and many of the students also came from slaveholding families, those fr- those in the South. Um, and so they themselves brought racist attitudes to school. Um, on the side of the African Americans, w- what was happening was that um, the influx of hundreds of Indian students, you know, boys, And young men had created an incredible workload for them. And what they complained about were um, assaults on their dignity or, you know, unreasonable demands from students. Um, And so you have these kind of, there's uh, a a convergence of peoples and cultures in this space in Great Crossings, um, but also a convergence of um, expectations, you know, that were sometimes at odds with one another.
0: So in 1828, Andrew Jackson is elected to the presidency, um, and there's a subsequent um, changes in Indian policy throughout the United States. Can you tell us how his election and these changes in policy, how they affected both life at Choctaw Academy as well as throughout Native North America in general?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a big question, but (laughs) tackle it. Um, So... uh, the election of of Jackson is really a turning point in this story um, that I'm telling, but also in Native American history more broadly. Um, You know, we we tend to think of um, uh, the presidency of Andrew Jackson as being um, about uh, Cherokee removal. You know, oftentimes Cherokee removal is kind of at the center um, of our popular thoughts about the history of the era. But um, when he comes into office, he's writing a wave of popular support from Democrats, many of whom are kind of newly empowered um, uh, white poor farmers, people who are ambitious, people who are looking to Indian country uh, to settle. And um Ultimately, you know, he is championing what's popular among that constituency, which is the removal of indigenous people um, and uh, the transfer of that land into the public domain and, you know, for the distribution to uh, white settlers. So um, ultimately what happens with Indian removal is... um, that it becomes a blanket policy that that targets not just the Cherokee Nation, but all Indians living east of the Mississippi. Um, So ultimately that policy forcibly removed about 100,000 Native Americans westward to Indian territory, mostly what's now Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, And uh, the policy is really important for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's... Um, you know, kind of un, like incalculable human tragedy, you know, and in, in some tribes up to 40% of people died um, because of the kind of abuses and mismanagement that took place during uh, the Trail of Tears. Um, and, you know, I can talk more about Indian territory later, um, but it is, you know, f- like first we we have to think about the human um tragedy of all this. And part of it too is that it is a kind of policy of ethnic cleansing that really seeks to remake uh, the United States east of the Mississippi. Um, You know, I talked before about like the status of Indians and how it created certain kinds of ambiguity in the racial hierarchy. And what Indian removal sought to do was to get rid of that ambiguity and to make the US really um, a place of white citizens. And the only other people who were tolerated were enslaved people. Um at Choctaw Academy, the like part of what's happening here when we think about Indian removal is that it's a huge policy change because um previously I you know we uh, the US operated under the civilization policy. And even though the ultimate goal was similar in that the United States was was trying to get Indian land, um, it's really a policy of assimilation and removal is um, just that, right? It, it seeks to expel Indians from the U.S. Um, it's an expulsion and segregation policy. Um, and so people start to say, well, what's what's the point of educating Indians? You know, what, what, what's the, the point of having a place like Choctaw Academy? And so the You know, as Jackson's presidency wears on, Choctaw Academy itself really becomes a battleground and it becomes this political uh, lightning rod in a way. Um, And you can kind of um, see that from multiple angles. And um, from the perspective of Indian people, they still wanted education for the same reasons that they had always wanted, because they felt like it would be an important weapon to help them fight Um, American imperialism or deal with the U.S. economy. Um, And then from the perspective of uh, white Americans, they themselves were, were actually quite divided about Indian removal. It was a very divisive issue in its day. So not necessarily everyone supported Jackson's policy. And in fact, a lot of people worked against it. Um, So you kind of see these different factions uh, debate the role of of race and education um, as the 1830s and 1840s wear on.
0: You mentioned the changing curriculum at Choctaw Academy, and I want to circle back around to that in a second. But first, briefly, since you did mention um, Indian Territory and life in Indian Territory, in the book it is described as a land of death. Um, Can you tell us briefly what life was like there and why it was so deadly to so many people?
1: Sure. Um, So, uh, the Choctaws, in particular, called Indian Territory the land of death, and part of that was because in their origin story, um, they they remember anciently migrating from a western land that had been full of death and suffering, and they had purposely come east um, to their homeland in what's now Mississippi to escape that, and so. Um, you know, when they thought about c- to their oral traditions, um they thought about uh, they they kind of identified Indian Tory a- as the land of death. you know? So in their minds, those two became linked. And unfortunately, in in reality, um, it it bore out a lot of that name. and And part of it is um, part of the reason for the suffering in Indian territory. Uh, we could go back partly to um, the government's policy of removal and its practices. One of the things that made removal so deadly was that the federal government contracted out transportation and um, feeding uh, of of the immigrants to um, private individuals. They um, so they contracted these things out to the lowest bidder, uh, and there was really very little oversight in the system. So, you know, some of these contractors never provisioned the Indian immigrants at all. Others bought spoiled food or didn't buy shoes or, um, you know, there are all kinds of, um, things that that could have been avoided, but, but certainly, um, the conditions of removal themselves really amplified, uh, the suffering of people, um, so, if people didn't necessarily die of um, starvation, they may have, have died of disease or exposure. Um, and then, part of the reason for this name, the Land of Death, is also ecological. And and um, you know, Oklahoma itself is is um, you know we know today it has it has a lot of extremes of weather. You know, it's got droughts, it's got tornadoes, and you know, while those things are are certainly present in in parts of the East, um, uh, Oklahoma does have more extreme weather. And it just so happens that during this time of uh, the Trail of Tears, um, Oklahoma and uh, the surrounding region was undergoing a drought that was actually worse than the Dust Bowl of the 1920s. Um, So we know this from climate data now. Um, And at that time, there were prairie fires, tornadoes, um, you know, huge floods uh, that came in the summers and um, took out crops or, um, you know, after the floods, uh, mosquitoes might, might breed in there and spread disease. Um, so, you know, if we think about the, the toll of removal, we have to think about not just the Trail of Tears itself, but the immediate aftermath. Um, the, you know, the lack of provisions, the kind of natural disasters for which um, there was really no support or relief. Um, so these are the kinds of conditions that Native people faced um, in the immediate aftermath of the Trail of Tears. So, yeah, I, I mean, they're trying to remake their lives in a very difficult place. Um, ultimately, you know, they do manage to reestablish their nations, reestablish governments, homes, feed themselves. But um, they do it amid incredible adversity.
0: As you alluded to a little while ago, the so-called Age of Jackson and the Age of Removal, it it creates a changes at Choctaw Academy, particularly changes in the curriculum there. So what changes and how do both students and Native leaders respond to these changes?
1: So one of the... Um, Solutions that administrators at Choctaw Academy come up with um, to address policy change during Jackson's administration is to kind of de emphasize the elite classical education that the school had initially offered. So, you know, what of this part of the school's appeal in its early days was that. Um it, it gave students the option to do things like study moral philosophy, classical history, even Greek and Latin. And in fact, you know, a small number of students did go on to do things like go to law school and medical school. Um, so, you know, it was a very competitive classical kind of education. Um, but in the later years what what happens is that administrators introduce manual labor into the curriculum and this is kind of a way of justifying the school's existence to the Jackson administration by saying we are you know preparing um, native children for work as laborers, you know and and not as these elite uh, classically educated men. Um, so uh, there are all kinds of ways in which the school tries to, Uh, enforce this curriculum, Um, you know, partially some students were assigned to like labor on the plantation, like fix a roof or um, work in the fields alongside enslaved people. Um, Students were also kind of uh, sometimes offered small uh, amounts of money to uh, take classes to learn how to become a tailor or a wheelwright, you know, more artisanal. Um, trades and uh, these are incredibly unpopular um, changes to the curriculum in Indian country because um, basically uh, you know it it really undermines the whole reason that native leaders had sent their children to the school in the first place you know they say well actually the school is incredibly expensive and we could teach them how to be blacksmiths at home you know Um, they felt like students were being trained for subservient roles as, as part of the American underclass, or perhaps even on the same level as enslaved people. Um, so this is really the point at which um, Native nations who are footing the bill, after all, they're paying uh, the tuition for, for these students, um, they decide they need to come up with an alternate plan, um, some different kind of, of schooling uh, that's out of the control of the federal government.
0: At the end of the 1830s, Richard Johnson, uh, his his national ambitions are realized to an extent, and he emerges as Martin Van Buren's vice presidential candidate. Um, can you tell us a bit about what the national reaction was to Johnson's candidacy, and then how that reaction affected Johnson's family and life at Great Crossings in general?
1: Sure. So, yeah, really the... The apex of Jackson's political career is, is his vice presidency under Van Buren. Um, and it's interesting because one of the things that I really was intrigued by was how um, how people in Kentucky thought about um, the Johnson family and especially Johnson's relationship with Julia Chen and his two daughters. And um, part of what's interesting about um, Johnson is that in contrast to some other early American leaders like Thomas Jefferson, for example, who were kind of very closed about relationships with enslaved people, Johnson was very open. Um, and so, you know, local people um, knew that he he had these um, two biracial daughters. Um, he had parties at his house and so forth. So, you know, in a way he was very open about it. And what's partially interesting about his political career is that um, his family life didn't really become a huge um, issue or liability until he became a candidate at the national stage. So what happens... um, when he becomes the democratic candidate for vice president is that there's, there's a huge backlash against that. And in fact, um, the Virginia delegation in particular refuses to cast their ballots for Johnson. And they specifically bring up his, um, biracial daughters and his relationship with Julia Chen as, as the leading reason why they're doing this. And, um, This really continues um, to plague him for the rest of his political career. So it has a tremendous impact. Um, Part of this is that um, the story comes out at a time when um, the second party system is really intensifying and you have these two very distinct parties, Democrats and the Whigs. And so Johnson's uh, family life becomes fodder for his political enemies. Um, and, uh, he, he does go on to become vice president, although he doesn't actually have the votes to do it. So, um, he's still the only vice president who, who was, um, confirmed by a vote in the Senate. Um, so that, that gives you a sense of, you know, how ambivalent, um, white American voters were about, uh, his candidacy, um, And it does have a big impact too on his family. Um, By this point, actually, Julia Chin had died. She had died in a cholera epidemic um, because she is actually a a kind of um, nurse practitioner who treated the sick uh, in the area. Um, But, uh, you know, it has a tremendous impact on um, his surviving daughters uh, and their families. and I think you know, one way in which this this can be read is um, uh, the really part of the effects of um, scientific racism and an increasingly kind of um, virulent sectional politics um, that are partially uh, about race. So Johnson himself and his family really are, are at the center of that.
0: You introduce, toward the end of the book, another important character, uh, Dr. Adam Nail. Can you tell me who he was and why his, as you describe it, his rebellion sparks uh, a sea change and kind of begins the ball rolling toward the downfall of the Choctaw Academy?
1: Sure. So one of the interesting figures in the book, Adam Nail, he is a Choctaw um, who is one of the you know, brightest, uh, most high achieving students in, in the school's history. He um, initially starts off uh, as, as a regular student and then he um, starts to study medicine. And at that time, um, you know, medicine, well, the study of medicine wasn't necessarily formalized in the way it is now. And so what he did mostly was an apprenticeship um, with a local physician um, he goes through this apprenticeship. Um, he may have also taken courses at a nearby university. Um, and eventually he, he, he becomes uh, Dr. Adam Nail. So he's, he's uh, a practicing physician and he takes over the duties of doctor at Choctaw Academy. Um, and he's one of a small group of Native men who do become teachers or administrators at the school. Um, and, you know, I don't know exactly how this happens. I mean, one of the ways that I could imagine it might've happened is that through his practice, um, Dr. Nail, he sees student injuries, he's talking to students, he's maybe hearing about abuses and, um, eventually what he begins to do is to undermine Johnson's control of the school. Um, and, uh, he, he lashes out against Johnson, against the curriculum. Um, he uh, eventually uh, writes a petition that um, outlines uh, the various charges against the school, and many of the students sign the petition. And that petition is sent to um, the U.S. federal government um, and also to Uh, the Choctaw Nation, the officials of the Choctaw Nation. And it has a tremendous impact. So there's actually a congressional investigation into the school. um, And that's really the beginning of the end of the school um, in terms of its support in Indian country, because Choctaw leaders take these charges very seriously, and they decide themselves um, to think about how to withdraw students and come up with educational alternatives.
0: Which brings us back to Peter Pitchlin, because toward the end of the, the tenure of Choctaw Academy, he steps in as superintendent, and there's really a power struggle between him and Johnson. So what did Pitchlin accomplished in the interim uh, between his time at the school and when he returned? And then how does he finally bring about the Academy's closure?
1: Yeah, so um, Pitchlin had uh, left Choctaw Academy in the 1820s, and he... Um, Thereafter went to the University of Nashville, which is now Vanderbilt University, and uh, had really become an important statesman. And his role in Indian Territory after removal um, was to think about how to rebuild the Choctaw Nation. And um, partially as a result of Adam Nail's petition, what the Choctaw Tribal uh, Council does is to make... Peter Pitchlin, their new superintendent of schools, and uh, his idea is that um, the Choctaw Nation should withdraw the money that it's spending on Choctaw Academy and build its own system of public schools in Indian Territory. He thinks that will be money better spent, that it can actually be um, managed by appropriate tribal officials. Um, students will be closer to home. you know there there are a lot of different benefits, and it's um uh, it it becomes um, a reality because basically um, uh, what pitchland does is he goes to washington d c and acts as a kind of lobbyist, so he curries favors with the new administration um uh, among whom are many critics of, of Richard Johnson for, you know, maybe not necessarily for the Choctaw Academy issue, but for other kinds of issues uh, in, in Johnson's career. And um, he gets the approval of uh, the War Department, which then controlled Indian Affairs to become the new Uh, superintendent of Choctaw Academy itself. And what's interesting is that Pitchland's entire plan is to close down the school. You know, he's really Hmm. not interested in reforming it. Um, What he wants to do is to, first of all, get into Richard Johnson's record books to catalog mismanagement, you know, to prove to the federal government that, um, that native nations need educational alternatives. And secondly, to withdraw Um, particularly the the students from his nation, the Choctaw Nation, because that's really all he has the authority to do, Um, but also to help other students who may be interested in returning to their own tribal nations to get back home. Um, And so that's that's exactly what he does in 1842 and 1843. So that's really the beginning of the end of the school because his activism um, is very inspirational to to other uh, tribal nations. And he actually becomes an attorney for some other tribes to um, wrangle with the federal government to regain control of their tribal money. Um, And what most of the Native nations do is to withdraw that money and build their own public school systems in Indian territory. So there's actually kind of an untold history of a thriving system of tribally-controlled schools that existed um, in Oklahoma or um, Indian Territory, uh, really until uh, about 1900.
0: And just to put a period at the end of the story of the Choctaw Academy, when do the last students leave the school?
1: The last students leave in 1848.
0: So so it lasts a little bit longer after the beginning of the 1840s, but it, it peters out over the course of the decade.
1: It does, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so once Pitchland and Adam Nail kind of start that process in the early 1840s, it does take a while. And part of it is because, you know, the tribal nations themselves aren't unified. You know, Pitchlin and Adam Nail, they, they speak for the Choctaw's. But at that time, there are still, you know, over a dozen different Indian nations there. And um, not everybody's on the same page. So some people think Choctaw Academy is problematic, but they don't really have educational alternatives. Um, Some people want to wait until they actually get schools built um, to bring students home. And some um, nations actually do something interesting, which is to take the students who had gone to Choctaw Academy and place them in American colleges and universities. So some of them haven't totally given up on American educational institutions. They just decide to um, place their students elsewhere.
0: And finally, you end the book in the conclusion by describing the legacy of many of the important people from the story that you tell, as well as the ideals that they carry on. So can you briefly tell us what happened to people like Richard Mentor Johnson and like Peter Pitchlin and their families throughout the the Civil War and the postwar eras?
1: Sure. Um, So I. I try to trace, um, some of the people from the book, um, in, in their post graduate lives or, you know, after the school closes. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because in many ways this is such a forgotten place and it's seen as a failed experiment. Um, but at the same time, it had a really profound impact on the people who were involved as well as policies in the U S and in Indian country. So the school itself is going to shape how the United States, um, creates later uh, Indian boarding schools, like Carlisle, for example. Um, And it also shapes, you know, how Choctaws and other people think about their public schooling system and what, you know, indigenous controlling, uh, controlled schools should look like. Um, So it definitely shapes policy. Um, In terms of people's individual lives, um, you know, many of the Indian students, um, even those with critiques of Choctaw Academy, take Those experiences and those critiques, and try to transform them into improving lives for themselves or their families or their nations. Um, And so, for example, um, you know, we have people like Adam Nail, so the kind of whistleblower at Choctaw Academy, he uh, is expelled, or, you know, also fired from his role as academy doctor, he goes to Indian territory and becomes a doctor there. So he has has a, a practice, and actually um, some of his children and grandchildren also become doctors. So it becomes kind of family profession. Other people become, they start newspapers, um, they become tribal leaders, they become judges, um, they become chiefs. Uh, so what happens with a lot of these um, men is that they start to form the backbone of um, post-removal Indian nations. So part of what they want to do is to think about how to help their nations um, survive uh, the trauma of removal and reinvent themselves um, into um, modern nation states um, that have... Kinds of social services, you know, like medicine, for example, and education, and so forth. Um, when we look at uh, other groups that were involved at Choctaw Academy, um, I mean, one of the um, interesting stories is is that of um, enslaved people who who were there. So, um, for example, uh, Imogene Johnson's daughter, um, she certainly suffers from the kind of politicization of her, um, family during, uh, Johnson's vice presidency. Um, but ultimately, um, she remains in Kentucky. She marries a white man, one of her neighbors, uh, they raise their children and grandchildren right there in the community. Um, and even though there are conflicts there, they're kind of drawing on that extensive web of kinship, um, to support a life that's empowering for them and their families. Um, and part of what we know is that Imogene um, uses the education that she got covertly at Choctaw Academy. Um, so I haven't mentioned this part, but part of the reason that Johnson wanted the school there was to help educate his daughters. Um, so we have uh, things that remain like her account books that show you know, how she dispersed property and how she thought about investing, for example. Um, other enslaved people, um, they drew on their, um, again, like more covert educational experiences, um, to become literate. And many of the people from that community after emancipation, they become exodusters on the high plains of Kansas. So they're some of the founders of a famous all black town in Kansas called Nicodemus, um, And part of what makes that community so strong and part of what community leaders want to do there when they first show up is to found um, schools. So that kind of desire for education, legacy of education continues to play a role in African-American communities that are descended from great crossings as well.
0: Well, it's, it's a powerful and really rich book, and there are so many things that I wanted to, uh, to ask you about, but that we didn't really have time for, including, I mean, Charles Dickens makes an appearance in the book, and we didn't get a chance to talk about him and Peter Pitchlin's meeting, for one thing. Yeah. Um, but if there's one takeaway that you hope that readers come away from your book with, what would it be?
1: Um. Well, part of, I think, what surprises people about this story is really the possibility of that moment um, of, of you know, we're, we're so used to thinking about the early republic as a time of closing off of opportunities for people of color. Um, and I think it's a real cautionary tale against seeing um, any kind of a linear view of American history, whether that's, you know, a kind of story of American exceptionalism, where America's always getting better all the time, or a story of simple declension, you know, when it comes to Native people, for example. You know, instead, I think that um, there are kind of these cyclical patterns. um, And uh, if we take the moment of Choctaw Academy, for example, it it shows us really the possibilities um, of... Uh, Americans working to create uh, a future that is more inclusive, um, that is more tolerant um, and you know the ways in which that can break apart you know so I think I think it's a real uh, lesson for for our own time.
0: So as you well know, historians rarely rest, and we like to, on this podcast, get a preview of what um, our our authors that we talk to are working on next. So do you have an idea of a next project? Any idea what you're going to be getting into kind of down the road?
1: Yeah, I'm actually kind of jumping into a new project um, that carries some of the themes of my previous work. Um, It's called uh, Slavery After the Civil War the slow death and many afterlives of bondage. And um, basically what I'm looking at here is... um, how the United States thinks about applying abolition as a policy in the West and overseas as it expands in the postbellum period—you know how to deal with things like the enslavement of African Americans in Indian Territory or um, Latino peons in the Southwest or um, Indian slaves uh, in the Great Basin—and um, uh, you know, in some ways, it kind of—it's—it's it's an expansive project. It's carrying my work into a later time period, but it also um, picks up on some of these earlier themes of bridging Native American and African American historiographies and thinking about U.S. history more continentally um, and, you know, kind of the effects of American imperialism for different groups of people.
0: Well, I will anxiously await the release of that project. Well, thank you. Christina Snyder is the McCabe Greer Professor of History at Penn State University, and her new book is Great Crossings, Indians, Settlers, and Slaves in the Age of Jackson, which came out last year with Oxford University Press and in 2018 won the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians. Christina, thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Okay, thanks so much for having me.